Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To our regular listeners, thanks as always for joining us. And to those of you who are tuning in for the first time, we are delighted to have you as we launch our next full season of the show. By the end of last year, we had covered everything from unsolved murders to the mischief of the Dixie Mafia, from gangsters making their great escapes to, yes, even a dog being put on trial. But notice one common thread that runs between them. In nearly every one of those cases, there was a clear perpetrator, even if that perpetrator was later found innocent. Now, I know you've all heard of victimless crimes and can probably name quite a few, but let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of a crime without a criminal? Or a criminal who, because they are no longer of this world, or never were, literally cannot be caught? We couldn't help but wonder about this question as we read the brand new book, Supernatural Lore of Southern Utah, by author and historian Darren Edwards, where such matters come up time and time again. We are thrilled and chilled to start off our new season by diving deep into the high desert, a place where centuries of blood have been spilled into the sand. And as Darren tells us, if you listen just carefully enough, you might hear the whispers of what those bloodstains have to say. Darren, welcome to Crime Capsule. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are particularly excited to have you kick off our second season, which is also our first attempt at bringing in criminals who are not normally thought of as criminals, which is to say ghosts. We're doing paranormal, and there is a lot of interest these days in uh, paranormal, maybe more so than there ever has been, thanks to new media, technology, motion capture, all sorts of things which have arisen to sort of see what's beyond the veil, right? And you touch on that in your book. I I want to ask you just First off, how did you come to write this volume? It started when I was in grad school um, at Utah State. I took a class called Folklore of the Supernatural from Dr. Jeannie Banks Thomas. And I had never thought of approaching supernatural things from an angle other than are they factually real or not. Um, And so seeing her approach as a folklorist where it doesn't matter if they are factually real or aren't. It's it's what do they mean to the cultures that tell them, what they mean to us as human beings. Um, that became so much more interesting to me and made it so I didn't, I mean, I'm a skeptic who really wants to believe. So it gave me a route to hmm. be intrigued by these things where I didn't have to be irritated by, you know, people running around with EMF meters and being like, that's not science. Um, and then I just, I had that interest in it, you know, percolated for a long time until I started teaching a class about the, the folklore and some other things related to it, different, just different academic ways to approach supernatural things. And then the book came out of it. Well, uh, Fox Mulder, one of the things that I appreciated so much <laughs> about your, 
<laughs> particular account was, um, first of all, we have a fairly unique region of the country in which to study these things. And I, I want very much to um, to hear a little bit about that from you. But but just as well, you know, you also spend a great deal of time in your book really talking about the issues involved in investigating, exploring, documenting, and analyzing paranormal cases. And it's a wide variety of cases, but, but for you, you have a, a sustained uh, set of questions about what constitutes evidence and data and knowledge in this particular case. And I found that really helpful. What, what brought that sensibility on as you were writing? I think... Part of it's just being a creature of habit. Part of it is as I've thought about these issues over the years and as I've looked at different um, stories, I just I found things that worked best. Um, in leading classroom discussions, once I had established my class, found you know there were questions and lines of reasoning that led to a more fruitful outcome. So that's kind of what I stuck to as my holy grail. And then some of it comes from the genre itself. I Technically, my my education, my master's degree is in research-based creative nonfiction. And that is in itself, that kind of CNF is, has its own rule book, I guess you could say. Like there's just certain ways that things are usually done that you're trained to do things. Um, and that's whether or not, you know, you're writing about birds or ghosts. You know, you, you have place visits, you interview people, you look for things in the historical record, um, and you bring those all together. One of the distinctions that you make in your volume, and you make it very early on as you're describing your training, is this kind of difference between factual truth and experiential truth. Can you unpack that particular difference for us? Yeah, there's and there's a lot to that to be unpacked. On the surface, it can be the difference between something that is true for you and something that is true for everybody. So I teach a lesson on post-bereavement communication. I talk about it in the Lydia Knight chapter, actually. I talk about that concept of post-bereavement communication. And as I was preparing that lesson one night, I was laying in the bed with my wife and we were talking about it. This is about six months after her grandmother had died. And then, you know, having just talked about that as she went to bed, she wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, I just heard my grandmother. And, you know, I could have gone the, the factual route and been like, well, you know, I don't really believe in that stuff. And da, 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 da. and that might have spoken more to the factual truth in a way. But it would have been horrible, you know, personal, emotional truth wise. And so she asked me what to do. And I said, well, what do you want to say to her? And instead of, you know, this being a moment where I, as, as the skeptic husband, was kind of a dick. Um, it was this beautiful <laughs> moment where she got to say some last words to her mother or her grandmother and really have a beautiful experience there. And I think both of those are, are valid. Uh, and I think it's important to distinguish between the two because um, we can't base things like policy on personal truth. That needs to be on factual truth. But we need to respect each other's personal truths. And we need to appreciate that those things are an essential part of our lives. Um, so that's, that's one level. And then it gets deeper as to the, the emotional truth of a place can be different for different people. You look at a place like Grafton um, that I talk about in there. And you have, there's the, the emotional truth of that place to the ancestors of the pioneers that established it. And then there is the emotional truth of it to the teenagers in the 80s that went and would party and hang out there. And then there's the emotional truth of the native, the indigenous peoples that were there before any of those people got there. 
And all of them, if, if you approach any of those three groups, just looking at it from a different group's perspective, they get very upset because that's not their grafting, right? right. Um, and so to really understand the whole emotional truth of an area, you have to examine and bring in everybody's emotional truth and kind of look at how the pieces connect. And it becomes a very complex but very beautiful map. You remind me of a phrase that occurs in Nathaniel Rich's novel, King Zeno, which is set around the time of a very grisly axe murderer uh, here in New Orleans. And um, it's a common enough phrase, but he uses it to great effect. Towns within towns, right? I mean, you have people who live just across the street from one another, but their roots, their routines, their places of interest are so incredibly different that they actually live in two different cities despite being next door neighbors, right? Yeah. And your account of of experiential truth or sort of personal truth in that respect, I think uh, speaks to that beautifully. Thank you. So uh, I want to ask you about another distinction you make. You have sort of three key distinctions that you lead the book off with. The first is factual versus experiential truth. The second is an interesting one. You make a, a subtle distinction between evidence and data, and you actually suggest, number one, that those are two different things, and number two, that there's a third term which is even more useful to describe paranormal experiences uh, which is memorate. So break those three down for us because they recur time and time again in your dozen or so cases in this book. I don't know that I would ever put all three of those together. Like I would leave memorate almost in a different category. because uh, And that gets back to the emotional versus literal truth. Um, but data, and this is just the second half of my class, we focus less on the folklore and more on if we were to look at supernatural things from a scientific lens, what would that look like? And it looks very different than anything we're seeing on YouTube or the sci-fi channel or history channel. Um, you know, we talk about what is appropriate scientific methodology, what is, what is data, right? Data is just a recorded detail. It doesn't become evidence until the data not only proves your theory, but rules out other theories. So somebody can say, I, I saw a door fling open by itself. There's evidence of a ghost. Well, no, that's a data point. The door moved by itself. There's other things that could have caused that. Um, once the data also rules out that it wasn't the wind and it wasn't this and it wasn't this, then you can say it's evidence of that. So that's the, the difference there between data and evidence. As far as memorate, memorate is a term folklorists use um, to describe personal supernatural experiences, generally supernatural mm -hmm. experiences. And so that's where, and I have had, I have a friend who was the head of a history department at a university who believes all things supernatural. And, you know, he has seen ghosts and he's had these experiences. He is so much smarter than me. Who am I to tell him that he's full of crap, right? So, I mean, that's, it's not, at least yet, factually, scientifically provable. It's not reproducible, but it's, it's one person's, experience. And there is truth to that, whether or not it can be reproduced and um, analyzed in a quantifiable way is a whole different thing. Sure. But, you know, I, and this also ties back to post-bereavement communication, but the actual academic research that's been done on that shows that one, 80% of us tend to have those experiences where we hear or see or smell a recently deceased loved one and the two, mm -hmm. it has shown as they talk to people that had them, that it is a healthy part of the bereavement process. Yep. And so, and I saw that with my wife. 
And so at some point in my life, I very well may have, you know, I may hear when my father dies, I may hear his voice or see him. And that's going to be a real interesting experience for me as do I say, you know, okay, is this really my dad? Is this just my brain helping me through the grieving process? Um, So I look forward to crossing that bridge when I get there. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'll speak very personally for a second. I lost my father a couple of years ago and I did wonder at that moment whether I would have an experience like that. I, I was sort of waiting for it almost, and it never came. Um, it, it is an interesting question as to whether we do in fact prime ourselves and prime ourselves neurologically for those moments such that we produce them out of our own expectation of them. I mean, that is a skeptic has to ask that question does, doesn't the skeptic? Yeah, and that's um, that's something that both folklorists and just other you know scientific types of academics have noted is that they always make a distinction between sought and spontaneous supernatural experiences. You know, if you're out somewhere not trying to have a supernatural experience and you have one, that's very different than if you go out with a Ouija board and your brain is primed to have that experience. Um, so they do, researchers always do note when talking about these things, if they are. One quick example of, uh, of a story that came up in some of the post-bereavement research that I did, one of the researchers had recorded the story of a gentleman who, shortly after his mother died, his mother appeared to him. Um, they had a very short conversation, um, and he thought this was wonderful. It made him feel very good, so he called his sister to tell her she was devastated that mom appeared to him and not her. She was very upset. Oh. Um, But as, as he described her, he said, and she was in this blue dress that I had never seen before. And he described this dress in great detail. And her daughter says that we went shopping two weeks before she died and she wanted to buy that dress. And so now the daughter is able to feel like, oh, that was, she wore that dress for me. So I can know that was for me too. Um, So it's just, there's, it becomes so interesting when we start really peeling through the layers of some of these experiences. Well, and that leads quite naturally to the third distinction that you make in the book. And I want to highlight this because I think it's one that you handle very carefully and one which is very useful. You say there's a difference between a skeptic and a disbeliever. And you identify as a skeptic more than a disbeliever, but you reserve the right to disbelieve when the evidence does not have explanatory power in the way that a case might require. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely fair. Um, I am a, I am a skeptic, one who really wants to believe. I think UFOs and aliens and conspiracy theories are so interesting. If I, if I had it in me to just be just a true believer and believe things wholeheartedly without evidence, life would be so interesting to be able to believe that aliens build the pyramids and all those things. But my brain just doesn't function that way. But if I'm going to be truly skeptical, then that means I have to be open to, well, we don't have really any evidence that these things aren't real. Some of these things, we haven't come up with methodology to properly test them. So how can we rule them out? Right? Um, So I just kind of stand there in the middle. Um, You know, I don't know whether or not anything happens after this life. We haven't found any evidence that, that there is something after this life, any like solid reproducible, you know, evidence. But at the same time, we haven't found anything that there isn't really. Um, And so without getting into some conjecture. And so I'm fine standing in the middle of that. Um, And I think that's one of the characteristics of a skeptic, at least according to Chet Ramo, who kind of really pinned down these terms of the difference between true believers and skeptics. 
is that skeptics are willing to live with a little bit of uncertainty. We're willing mm-hmm. to stand there in the middle and go, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, whereas for a true believer, whichever side they're on, they need it to be firm. This is how it is. You know, ghosts are real, ghosts aren't real. Right, and to avoid that particular kind of intellectual dogmatism, it can lead, I think, to, um, of course, more to an open mind, but also to better questions. Um, there's this sort of interesting, annoying but intriguing aspect of historical events, which is that by nature they are non-falsifiable, non-repeatable, non-reproducible, right? And so that is true of both historical events in the past and those events which are yet to occur. And so they, it is not even possible to subject to this subject them to the same kind of analysis, scientific analysis, that we would other questions, even though historical research uses scientific methods in different domains. So there's this kind of tension there, which skeptics, I think, inhabit quite nicely when, they, when they're willing to say, I don't yet disbelieve, <laughs> right? I might, but I might not. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I show my class, there's a couple of great documentaries um, that I show my students when we deal with the difference between skeptics and true believers. Um, and one of them is Netflix, uh, I think it's A Vanishing at the Cecil Motel. But you have, and I always make the joke with them because if, and you do true crime, so you know, like LAPD drops the ball a lot in true crime cases. But um, <laughs> the LAPD and the Cecil Hotel, they did a good job. Like the, the, inter- the detectives that they're interviewing, they maintained their skepticism the whole way through without giving in to, you know, as so often happens, the true belief of, okay, this is what it is. And now we're going to ignore evidence that doesn't align with our theory. Uh, they may remained skeptical through the whole thing. And then you get to the web sleuths who they just bounce from true belief. It has to be this. It has to be this. You know, they almost push one guy to suicide by, by saying that he did it. Um, it just really helps, I think, look at the differences between those mindsets and how they function. One more for the list. One more for the list. My backlog grows <laughs> ever longer. Um, let's talk about the area that you're studying. You are our first guest on Crime Capsule from Southern Utah, from Utah at all, actually. And I'm very excited to have this territory kind of enter into our criminal consciousness around here. Um, do two things for us. I mean, first, tell us a little bit about the area and and maybe more importantly, uh, can you answer the question as to why is it so haunty? You use this word haunty, and I really like it, and I want to keep using it. So why is Southern Utah so very haunty? Um, so first, what it's like, it's it's Southern Utah is hot. It's desert. It's high desert. People, I don't know why they don't think that. People come here. We get millions of tourists each year for places like Zion National Park, Bryce's Canyon, all those things. Um, and when people come to Zion, they... I don't think they understand what high desert means. And so we have people every year, dozens of them who get lost out there dehydrated, who, you know, go into heat stroke, all these things because they don't understand exactly how hot it really gets. So that's the first thing that's really, really hot here. Um, It's it's rough terrain. Uh, There's other places in Utah. When, When the Mormon pioneers first came here, they settled up in the Salt Lake Valley, which has mountains and snow and rivers. Um, and then Brigham Young sent settlers down to Southern Utah, um, to try and it was called the, the cotton mission and they were trying to grow cotton. Um, and it didn't really work because this area is not super habitable. Um, and I think that's (laughs) both those things tie into why it's so haunty. One, the people that were here before white people, 
the indigenous people were very spiritual people. And so it is filled with their spiritual lore, their spiritual practices. And then the people that came in and kind of overrode them in, in mm-hmm. oftentimes very horrific ways themselves were very spiritual. I mean, the Mormon belief system doesn't at least report these things very much now, but when you read early Mormon history, there's demonic possessions, there's spirits being cast out, there's, you know, visions all the time. Um, and mm. so things that we might classify as supernatural if we aren't part of that faith, um, which I get in, this, in the St. George Temple chapter, the difference between, between the spooky and the holy, I think you have an area that is filled with these two very, very different cultures, um, both of which believe in things beyond the veil and believe in things mm-hmm. outside of what our senses can pick up. And I think that makes it right for those types of stories. So I want to begin very briefly with one. I want to just ease into the warm waters of the kiddie pool before we get all the way (laughs) into the deep end here. Um, And you have a case uh, early on in the book where you describe um, a curse, a sort of mysterious curse that seems to plague the Escalante Petrified Forest. And it's a, it's really interesting, Darren, because in in this particular case, there was not a massacre like there was in one of your other accounts, right? There was not a jilted lover. There was not uh, a ballerina murdered by her boyfriend that you know on on a, on a theater stage. You know, there wasn't sort of like a direct crime of wrongful death which leads to a vengeful spirit, et cetera, et cetera, or hundreds of them, as the case may be in our, in, the, in the massacre chapter. What you have here is this petrified wood forest. We have one of those in Mississippi where I'm from, and I love it. It's absolutely gorgeous. You know, very enigmatic, very um, very atmospheric when you go there, and and. And just tell us what happens. That there's <laughs> what you take only pictures, leave only footsteps is something that comes up in your chapter. Because when people take something other than pictures, bad things start to happen. But there's no this curious thing that nobody is. Um, there's there's no perpetrator. There's no identifiable perpetrator. So what's going on? And that's that's so what I wanted to find as I started that chapter. I was certain I was going to find, you know, based on some indigenous legend or some, you know, settler story about an interaction with indigenous people or something. And it just, you know, I talked to a ranger who had, you know, the, the head ranger at Escalante um, Petrified Forest State Park who had, you know, yeah. contacted to and been in contact with two or three before him. None of them knew. They just started getting the letters one day with people returning the thing saying, hey, I took this. I probably shouldn't have. And I have had nothing but bad luck since I got it. And so they return these tiny pieces of petrified wood that are so easy to slip in your pocket. And it's the the array of type of people they come from, places they come from, types of bad luck recorded. I mean, we get everything from little kids who their bad luck was their parents caught them with it. And they got chastised and had to send it back, right? And in their cute well, little that's a personal crayon, truth, <laughs> right? There's a cute little crayon handwriting. They said, "I know, and I shouldn't have." Um, and then you have the people. There was one gentleman I mentioned in the book who, you know, blames the death of his brother on the fact that they took he took this piece of petrified wood to give to his brother, and then his brother died. It's it's an interesting one with no no explanation. We tend to. Folklorists, and I'm not a folklorist, though I, I like to think the way they think a lot, 
Um, folklorists look for what's the, the cultural truth in this story. Why are people sharing the story? And that's kind of the direction I ended up taking that chapter because there was no origin that I could find for it. And so why do we keep sharing it then if there's no compelling origin story? And I think it's this idea of the Western United States is such a nexus for guilt and regret for the way that we expanded, both in how we dealt with the indigenous people and in how we dealt with the land and how much the land has changed um, in, in the worst in a lot of ways for our progression westward. And so I think some of that is seen in the letters and in the, the things that people send back. All right, let's, let's just shoot from the hip here. Yeah. You have a lot of discussion in your book about methods and about data collection, and we're going to get to that with Lydia Knight shortly. But here is what I want to know. Would it be possible to conduct a controlled, randomized, double-blind trial of... A hundred individuals, each of whom took a, a rock, a pebble, a, a chunk from Escalante, and then to measure across those hundred individuals what kind of misfortune befell them, right? I mean, like that would be the scientific approach. That's what Dana Scully would do, you know, when Fox Mulder would come to her and say, there's a, there's a curse in this woods, you know? <laughs> so what, what are we going to do about this, Darren? How are we going to investigate this? I think it absolutely could. There was a part of me that was tempted for the book to do that, to take one myself and just see if anything happened. No, 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 no I was don't like, do it. Don't you don't do I was it. Like, somebody else, let somebody else do it. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that just because I grew up by national parks and I know you don't do that. Um, but yeah. my students at the end of the school year, they have to conduct a scientific uh, experiment about something supernatural. And a bunch of them have done things about like walking under a ladder being bad luck or black cats being bad luck. And they have come up with some of the most innovative, cool ways to measure luck. Um, and I think that's what the, if scientists were going to do that, I think they absolutely could, but they have to define what they mean by luck. They then have to come up with a metric to measure. How are they going to measure that? Um, and then, you know, very unbiased subject selection. I think it'd be fascinating. I want to read it. I want them to publish it in, you know, journal of national Mm. sciences and yeah, let's, let's do that. Get somebody on it. We will sick our finest historians and analysts, <laughs> uh, you know, on the uh, on the question and, and report back. Um, no, what was really lovely about that particular chapter, uh, I thought, uh, curses or non-curses or sort of general spookiness aside, um, you have this meditation at the very end, which is that, you know, this forest has been around much longer than humans have. And uh, if you think about it, we, we truly are the ones who are the ghosts inhabiting it just for a very short period of time, sort of coming and going. And it reminded me of, um, I'm a big Josh Ritter fan, uh, singer songwriter, and he's got this great song called, you know, ground don't want me. And it's about sort of a civil war survivor, you know, a veteran of civil war who survives and all his buddies died. And he's the one left wandering the fields of the earth without mm. them. And he's the ghost, you know, and I just, I really thought that you had this this beautiful take on what what is temporality really? And, you know, if we're going to really take a look at this and zoom in where we're supposed to and zoom out where we're supposed to, um, it invites those questions. So I really appreciated your meditating on that. Well, thank you. Let's talk about Miss Knight. Um, she is one of the stars of your book. And uh, if that's okay to say so, I think that's okay to say so. I think, uh, I think you would be okay with that. Okay. Okay. I'm grateful to hear you say that. I feel absolved. She's an interesting one and I want to single her case out because it does 
draw together some of these considerations that you have about investigation and about data um, together. So uh, first of all, just tell us a little bit about who she was and how she came to be buried in such a prominent way. Um, I have some questions for you about evidence sourcing because you, you do a really good job of bringing in multiple different kinds of data in order to assess the legends and the lore sort of surrounding her. But just just for our listeners who might be unaware of some of the history of the Mormon church in that area or kind of the expansion that you described, who was Lydia Knight and why why do we care about her now? Well, within the Mormon, you know, culture and history, um, she recently, I, I'm trying to remember what my interviewee said, I think it was like maybe 20 years ago, picked up a sense of, of fame as people started, you know, exploring the, the narratives and the journals of people. Um, so when the Mormon church started back east, as they were slowly moving west, their main situation back east was was Kirtland, Ohio. Um, and that's, they, they built a temple there and they had a big community. And that's when Lydia Knight joined them. Her first husband had been abusive. She got away from him, went to Nauvoo. Her parents gave her her inheritance to help her do that. She gets there day one and they say, hey, um, Joseph Smith, the prophet, that started this church, he's in jail. We need bail money to get him out. And she just hands over her inheritance, which means she has nothing. So she gets invited to stay with, um, I think it was the prophet's brother. And she stays with him for a while. Through that course, she meets her her future husband. Um, and they have what's called the love story of, oh, this was then in Nauvoo. So they have the love story of Nauvoo, Illinois, um, because yeah. they wanted to be together, but she was technically still married to this abusive guy. Um, and so they couldn't get married, but they wanted to. And so they stayed like that mm. until word got to her that her first husband had died. And then Joseph Smith was able to marry them. It was the first marriage that Joseph had performed. And it's, it's actually a really beautiful love story. She, Lydia herself went through so much. I and mean, all of those early Mormon pioneers went through so much with everything they dealt with back East, the, the, um, governor Boggs's execution order, um, where it's basically legal to hunt Mormons, um, things like that, to the, the difficulties of traversing the West in, in um, wagons and things like that, um, the harsh state winter's quarters, all these things. And she did it and, and did it by herself. Her husband, Newell, her new husband, died before the trek mm-hmm. West. And so I think that's why she took on or has recently taken on this kind of celebrity within the LDS culture is um, – that she was a very strong, independent woman. Yeah, sure. The, the association with the prophet Joseph Smith, that kind of celebrity by association. And then she was buried. Uh, so she, she made it west to Utah uh, with her kids. Mm-hmm. She remarried a couple times here. She ended up moving down to southern Utah towards the end of her life, was fairly poor, um, didn't know a ton of people in the community. And when she was buried, they were just going to, I can't remember if they were going to give her a small headstone or if they did. And then her son, Jesse, who was a big mining kind of tycoon, found that out and was like, no, it's like she's getting the biggest headstone in the place. And so she has this very prominent kind of geometric base headstone with a big orb on top that makes it notable. And that's where those stories tend to start sticking out is we find the biggest thing in the cemetery and say it's spooky. Yeah, there are there are overtones. Uh, I mean, I know that the Mormon Church does not beatify in the same way that, of course, the Roman Catholic Church does. But there were almost some overtones of kind of like Saint Lydia a little bit. You know, I mean, she'd kind of almost earned a 
a designation in that sense. And people do make these pilgrimages to her grave. But what's interesting is you write that the pilgrimages, they're not exactly for veneration's sake. They're for a very different reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are groups of people within the LDS faith who do make pilgrimages to visit her grave. I don't think they would ever call them that. um, But I think that's what they are. Um, And then there are, you know, there's the people that visit her not knowing her history at all. It's just that there is this folklore of, you know, here's this big notable grave that has this inscription on it, not dead, but sleeping, um, which seems kind of spooky. And so, you know, it gets the story that if you go there at night and she's not dead, she's just sleeping, she'll wake up and you can talk to her or she'll appear to you. And so there's all these different versions of different you know, rituals, if we want to call them that, you know, you circle the grave this many times, you say her name this many times, and she'll appear to you or you'll hear her. Um, And that's kind of the the local lore. So you went Mm -hmm. and you made your own non-pilgrimage pilgrimage, and Mm -hmm. (laughs) you were in search of a pretty good photograph of the the headstone at night, and you got one. Um, But uh, tell us about your experience there, and then tell us about your friend Cindy's experience there, because the two of y'all had very different kinds of experiences at this this site. So my experience, I had gone, and one of of the things that I do from my training— in writing creative research-based creative nonfiction is I do something called a, a place visit, right? It's a, it's a type of research. But when I'm doing a place visit, I always, as soon as I'm done, I sit down and I write for 10 minutes just about what it was like. Um, that's when I was in Escalante. That's when this feeling and this idea of where the ghosts hit me was as I was sitting in Escalante writing for those last 10 minutes. Um, I think those are oftentimes some of the most profound writing moments we get as, as writers of creative nonfiction. But so I sat after I had visited Lydia's grave and I was writing and it just dawned on me. I had had this experience where I, I tripped over a new grave plot, uh, stumbled a little bit, didn't fall away down, but I stumbled a little bit and I heard something off in the distance at the same time. And I was like, if I had come out looking for a ghost story, that would have been my ghost story. Right. And it would be a great ghost story. If I would tell the way I would tell it, everything would work, but I wasn't there in that mindset, you know, gets back to what we had said about, the experiences that are sought after versus not. Um, right. I, I had not been, I had been thinking about, you know, is my exposure going to be correct? Is the, the lighting of the moon going to work? And then we have uh, Cindy's experience, who such a wonderful, wonderful, sweet woman. I sat down to interview Cindy and we had about a two hour interview and the first 20 minutes of it dealt with Lydia Knight. Um, that was all I was planning yeah. on interviewing her about. But then, um, so she tells me her story of her and she, when she was in her 30s or so working at the hospital, her and some co-workers decided they'd never actually done the Lydia Knight Challenge, but they'd heard about it since they were in high school. So they decided to get mm-hmm. some equipment and go, go do this. Um, she gets called into work, so she's not able to go on the adventure. Her friend and her friend's mom go. They say nothing happens. She's like, well, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of, you know, I have a connection to these types of things. I, want, I would love to hear the recording. She goes over to her friend's house, listens to the recording, and she says, clear as day, she hears when they say, you know, Lydia, are you there? She mm. says, clear as day, I hear, yes, I am here. And then she played it for the friend and the friend's mom who were there that night and didn't hear anything. And they said on the tape, clear as day, I am here. Um, so mm. she has this very interesting experience that then got us talking about, you know, I said, well, why are you, you said that you, know, you wanted to hear it because you've had experiences with these things. Tell me about your experiences with these things. And that got us 
the, you know, the other hour and a half of the interview is about all of her post-bereavement communications that she's had throughout her life. I just think that's where the chapter kind of took a turn I wasn't expecting. Did you get to hear this particular recording? If not, I tried. I tried getting in contact with her friend who never got back to me. She said that her friend still had it um, and has it in a box somewhere in her garage because she's afraid to like go near it, which I think is great. I would have loved to have you know, got to go near the spooky box and, and open it up and listen to the tape, but I wasn't able to get access to it. So this raises an interesting question, isn't it? Because you describe in your account that there are layers of access to the numinous, right? And there's sort mm-hmm. of a, a person can have a direct experience of the numinous, like say, you know, your wife and her, her grandmother, uh, you know, but you also have the the very common, in fact, the most common uh, classification of numinous experience is the F-O-A-F. Is that, a, please tell me, is that pronounced FOF? I really want it to be pronounced FOF. The friend of I pronounce friend. it FOF. Yeah, I pronounce it FOF. Right. I've heard it pronounced FOF. Um, it's a fun way to say it. So yeah, friend of a friend. Yeah, so I was as I was reading, I was thinking, how many layers away from the actual recording do we get such that it is a spooky tale, but somewhere in a box in an attic, allegedly, is the hard evidence, right? And so, like, how close can we get to that now, ostensibly? And it's interesting because you're, you're describing your sort of, your position as a skeptic, and yet, and yet I'm also wondering, it's like, the evidence in that box, will it ever come to light? Or is there kind of a shroud of mystery surrounding that such that we're not ever supposed to know because that would actually, in fact, ruin the story? You have cases like that in your book where people have actually admitted, no, I just made this up. Um, I think I think the shroud of mystery definitely helps build the intrigue of the story and helps it gets pa- get passed on. Um, as far as recordings, there's you know plenty of examples of EMF recordings um, where the people showed it to people and they listened to it and they're like, well, I guess you could maybe hear that. There's Mary Roach in her book, Spook, has a great chapter on that where she talks about the, the science behind EMF recordings and the things that they could be. But again, I think it's the fact that we want to believe those things. You know, what do you hear in the silence? You know, you hear what you, what you want to hear sometimes. And that can actually be stretched beyond supernatural things. You know, you, if you've ever known somebody who truly believes somebody had romantic feelings for them and you're going, where are you getting that? Are you hearing something or seeing something we're not seeing? That person doesn't have feelings for you. We tend to, you know, our own subconscious biases slip in. We tend to believe what we want to believe. Confirmation bias kicks in and that happens. So I think those stories are often most powerful when the evidence, quote unquote, doesn't come to light. And the same thing with I'm on a bunch of, you know, Facebook and Internet groups for supernatural things. And I get excited when everybody says, I caught this video. I'm going to post it. And I'm super excited. And then they post it and I get so disappointed because I'm like, no, that's just (laughs) it's just a piece of lint in front of the camera. I know that. But I was so excited for just a second because I wanted to see a ghost. But I do think, I mean, when you look at the, the things that we understand of the world compared to what we understood 100 years ago and as technology advances, you know, every once in a while, there's that revolutionary technology that hits and all of a sudden we have microscopes and we can see things that we didn't know were there. Maybe someday we'll hit that point where all of a sudden we can, you know, go to the spot and we can get Lydia to talk to us every time. And she's just hanging out there and she can tell us why she's hanging out there. It is interesting, you know, you 
you used this term a little while ago, which is the Lydia Knight challenge, right? It's the ice bucket mm-hmm. challenge. It's the, you mentioned <laughs> other challenges in, in the area in your book. There's the, um, uh, you know, the challenge of the, the ball- murdered ballerina in the theater and mm-hmm. uh, um, mur- all sorts of them. I mean, they were kind of all over your case region. Uh, I was curious, I wanted to ask you, Darren, you know, we are at a kind of turning point. Uh, if you zoom the lens back a little bit, everybody in the United States is walking around with an exceptionally powerful computer in their pocket, which can record all sorts of video and and you know photographic images and audio recordings and so forth. And new media and digital technology have enabled more opportunities, you know, to record strange incidents than ever before. And as someone who has studied these cases fairly closely, I wanted to ask you, um, you being the person who has studied these cases fairly closely, I am not a paranormal investigator, uh, but, you know, I wanted to ask you, does, does that kind of increased number of eyes in the sky floating around, you know, if there are 330 million Americans and half of those have smartphones, right? I mean, what potential does that hold for these kind of investigations? And and how do we combat against the sort of sincere, genuine attempts to understand something that we don't understand versus the, the fakery, right? Like the manufactured mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, I'm going to just titillate the crap out of my my Facebook group? Um, I think there's two parts to that. The first part is for the longest time, the, the rule of thumb in academia was, and this you know goes back to French Revolution times, um, that as technology and science advanced, all supernatural beliefs, all religious beliefs would go to the wayside because we just, we would, we would grow, outgrow those things. Um, but what we found with recent polling is all the way up to now, people believe in them just as much. And it doesn't matter their their race, their religion, their social class, their political leaning. We are evenly spread in this belief for these things. Um, so technology has has rather than destroying our belief in the supernatural, it's just changed the way we perceive it. Now there's urban legends about haunted phones and getting ghost phone calls. Um, hmm. There's you know urban legends about apps on phones now um, that I just I find it also fascinating. But as far as the ability of technology to capture this stuff, um, you make a great point. There are, you know, billions of us walking around with high-def cameras in our pockets. We should Mm -hmm. be capturing stuff. When the U.S. government recently, it was in 2020, I think, declassified their UFO files, right? There were two reactions to it. There was the people that said it's proof that aliens exist, and there were people that said, well, yeah, of course they have files on unidentified flying objects. Um, just because we have captured and can prove there are things out there that we don't know does not mean it's aliens. And so just because there's, you know, a billion of us out there getting videos of things we can't explain does not mean they're what we always thought they were, ghosts. Um, right. But it does give us a better place to start from in trying to figure out what they are. There's a very elegant um, summation of the fact that unidentified flying objects uh, have been 
Well, they remain unidentified, don't they? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it, right? We, we know more about UFOs than ever before, precisely that they are still unidentified. And I think that's a, a step for the federal government to recognize, you know, in, at least publicly in that respect, that, yeah, we don't know any more than you guys do, um, is, I like to think of that as, as healthy. I mean, my father was in the Navy, and if I see a Navy pilot tracking an object moving at, you know, startling velocity with, you know, uh, unexplainable vectors on a camera, and I watch that video, and Navy pilot doesn't know what's going on, and he's willing to say that on the record, uh, I'm, I'm siding with the Navy pilot. Yeah, we just don't know. <laughs> like, what is yeah. it, right? No, I agree. And I think that's a beautiful place to be at. Again, it's this place of uncertainty where you say, there's something. I don't know what it is. And our, our tendency as human beings is to let that confirmation bias slip in and say, well, this is what I believe and this is what aligns with my beliefs. So it's X, Y, or Z. Um, but if we can get past that to the place where we say, ooh, it's something. Let's let's take a closer look. And maybe it is aliens or ghosts or whatever. And that would be fascinating to me. Um, I don't think we're going to get there until we're willing to stand in that discomfort of that not knowing place. You have a lovely observation in the Lydia Knight chapter uh, with which we will close here, which is the question, you know, can we cherish the experience and examine it at the same time? Speaking of paranormal encounters, uh, and I really do believe the answer is yes. And it, even though you do not come to a conclusion about whether Lydia Knight is speaking to us from beyond the grave, it, it sounds to me that your answer is also yes, that we can examine and cherish and experience simultaneously. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I think you said that very well. I um, I use my, my wife's post-bereavement communication experience as an example. I have gotten her permission to sure. talk about this with people. Um, but if someone asks me, did your wife hear her grandmother? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Does, does that mean that her grandmother's spirit was talking to her? I don't know. But I know that she heard the voice, right? Hmm. I know that um, I mentioned the, the work done by Gerald R. Callahan in the Lydia Knight, Lydia Knight chapter. Um, mm. you know, he's an immunologist, very scientific guy. He acknowledges, I have seen my dead wife. He says what that means. I don't know. Is it a trick of my imagination? But I believe that especially with things like post-bereavement communication, where they're a positive, powerful experience or any kind of spiritual experience. You know, I've have, I have friends who are in, you know, um, I've lived in Utah my whole life. I have a whole bunch of LDS friends and family. Um, mm. who have had super spiritual experiences in a religious, you know, setting that, man, I'm not going to knock that for them. That's beautiful and powerful. And if they say they saw, heard, or felt something, I believe they saw, heard, or felt something. Doesn't mean that I'm going to see, hear, or feel the same thing. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com
so before we close, I wanted to ask you about one of the more curious and difficult cases in your book. Um, and this is a case where we were talking earlier about kind of the proximity to the event becomes very, very charged. Um, and this is also a case in which thinking of your particular geographic region and the very complex history uh, involved there, you are very careful to outline the the politics of discussing experiences that take place within indigenous communities, Native American communities, in this particular case, the Navajo. And uh, you are also very careful to ensure that you are not speaking for the Navajo, and we are not going to do that here uh, on Crime Capsule. In your book, they are given their own voice to describe incidents which defy common understanding or kind of traditional approaches to investigation. Okay, long preface, but... I wanted to ask you just a little bit about the case of the Skinwalkers and to say that uh, readers who are interested to learn more about these paranormal encounters are absolutely encouraged to read for themselves in the voices of the Navajo respondents uh, that you spoke to, uh, whom you record at length. What exactly is the nature of this encounter and can you just tell us a little bit about your reaction to your informant Alexis whose whose voice you record um, in extensive depth um, it's it's complicated and I think we need to respect that complexity yeah and that's why I mean one of the things in this book not just with with Alexis but with everybody that I interviewed it almost goes against my creative nonfiction training to put a transcript in chunks into a, into a book or an essay, because what we should do is we take the pieces that work the best and we create a vivid scene, almost like in fiction, but built around the facts that they've given us. Um, but in all the folklore texts that I've read, they are very careful to give the whole response in all of its, you know, choppiness and whatnot, because that's the folklore. You don't want to, to mix any of that up. And I thought, especially with indigenous stories, I wanted to be able to do that. When you get into skinwalkers, there are two types of stories that I like to classify. There are non-native stories and there are native stories or indigenous stories and non-indigenous stories. And I think when we look at them, and it's what I try and do in the chapter, we can see a lot in the differences between them. And I, especially in this area, there is nothing you can say to a non-native person that will spook them out faster than skinwalkers. And that's always intrigued me because they don't have a proper understanding of the belief. They... It, it's something that if they understood the belief properly, you know, one of the things that every indigenous person I interviewed about them said is a skinwalker wouldn't want anything to do with a white person. And so we have, you know, these white people out there having these experiences with, you know, being chased by skinwalkers. And I'm like, according to the belief, they would leave you alone. They want nothing to do with you. <laughs> and so I think that's very interesting to look at the way one culture takes this piece and appropriates it and commodifies it. I mean, we've got movies, we've got all kinds of stuff. Um, and not just with skinwalkers, but with every aspect of indigenous beliefs that can be bought, sold, put a price tag on, we have done that. At the same time, often, oftentimes as we are denying them the ability to practice their religion or to speak their language, there was a couple of people that I interviewed who, well, one of my friends that I interviewed who 
I'll, I'll say something he told me that hints at the complexity of it, but just to highlight what these groups of people have been put through, he has a brother who was old enough to remember being in a Indian school where mm-hmm. if he spoke his native language, he would be beat. Be. Um, and he's still alive. We tend to think of that as ancient history and it's not. But the other point that he made, my friend is really trying to help his tribe reclaim their spiritual beliefs and relearn some of those things that have been lost through time. And even within their community, there is tension about how to do that and if that's a good thing to do. There is a feeling within some of the communities of um, if it's if it's gone in the past, it needs to be in the past, right? Mm. And, and then he has to say, you know, so for example, if there's a, a song or a chant that should only be done by certain elders at a certain time, he says, yeah, but, but it's being forgotten. So I'm going to teach it to our tribe, you know, in right. certain settings. And there's the question of, is that right or not? And I think where those are difficult questions for those tribes themselves to answer, that's where I, as, as a non-Indigenous person, I try to steer clear of that. Um, and there's a lot of academics who have a hard time doing that because we think all knowledge and information we're entitled to. If they have a belief, we're entitled to know about that belief so we can study belief. Um, and I think we can't, we can't do that. One of my favorite photographers, Curtis Edwards, he famously put together this massive volume of photos of Indigenous people in the early 1900s. And he has a mixed legacy. There are some Native people that look at him and think his photos saved things that are gone now that have brought me back to my people. Mm-hmm. And there are some that look at him and say, I don't care. He shouldn't have captured that on film. That wasn't right. So it's really complicated. And I think um, as researchers, as academics, as non-Native people, we just need to do everything as carefully as we can. And that's, I typically take the action of trying to let them speak for themselves, which is what I tried to let Alexis do. Um, And when she shared her stories with me, Alexis, that chapter came down to the wire because I didn't want to just have white people's skinwalker stories. And I had interviewed a lot of indigenous people and I had gotten a few little stories, but nothing that was really going to work in the chapter. And then I found Mm -hmm. Alexis, she was commenting on an online board, correcting some misinformation about skinwalkers. And I said, Hey, you know, you said you have some experiences. Will you talk to me? We set it up. And over the, about the course of an hour, I got more chills than I've ever had. Um, the sincerity in the stories that she told and the detail in the stories mm-hmm. she told was more than anything else I'd gotten in the book. And um, yeah, it was really interesting. We are going to let our listeners find that story for themselves in Alexis's own words in your book. We are not going to reproduce it here, but it was so startling, so very startling uh, when when I read it, that I, I could not but ask you what you, as a professional skeptic by your own admission, made of it. Well, I think the things that I took away from it, um, and whenever I comment on these things, the way I try and be safe, um, and, I'm, and I am a white male in this culture, I know very much where my place lies in regard to any um, marginalized culture. Whether I'm talking about Black Lives Matter issues or I'm talking about LGBTQ issues or I'm talking about indigenous issues, my place, I feel, my place is to speak about not their story, but to correct and chastise my side of the story. 
to say, look at what look at what we are doing as a culture that is not part of that culture. Look at how we are harming them. We need to stop this. And that was kind of my takeaway was we have replaced as non-Indigenous American culture, we have replaced the 18 and 1900s fear of the savage Indian with the belief of the skinwalker and the Wendigo. Because mm-hmm. we don't believe in them the way that the tribes do. We believe in them in a way that fills a hole that was left when we realized, oh, indigenous people aren't brutal savages that we can be afraid of when we're out in the wild. Now here's this thing that we can. But it still influences the way we see those people. And so to me, that's the takeaway is that we still let, as, as white people, and I, I think I say at the end of the chapter, um, as white people, we have let beliefs like skinwalkers and wendigos creep into creep through our history and through our subconscious to terrify us and make us care less about and understand less a culture that we really need to understand and care about. Which is a very different approach from one that you describe earlier in the book. And there's a there's a passage I'd like you to read for us because it speaks to just this kind of tension surrounding what it means not not merely to believe, but to belong, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's over and over again in your account, whether it's with uh, the Navajo or whether it's with the LDS, with the church, the Mormons, whether it's with just ordinary people in Southern Utah, you, you are engaging this kind of question of what does it mean to be from here, to claim this place, which is contested, which has such a complex history, a bloody history in many ways, and, and yet still to feel that desire to connect to something beyond ourselves, to be a part of that. And it, it, runs, it runs through your book like a river, right? And I would just love for you to, as we, as we close out here, just there's this passage that starts at the very bottom of page 18. A paragraph begins, this is one of the threads. If you would just read that paragraph for us, because it, it really does sum up I think the impulse that so many of us feel towards the paranormal, um, whether it's a a malicious uh, sort of occurrence or a benign uh, occurrence with the paranormal. And our listeners will have a great deal of both of those coming at them uh, over the next several weeks. But just for now, just for now, uh, would you just read that for us, Darren? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the threads I found running through so many memorate. We want these experiences to be special extraordinary, miraculous. Occam's razor says that all things being equal, the simplest explanation is usually the right one. And most of us are glad to accept that scientific principle into our lives, except when it comes to those moments when we touch the supernatural. There is something inside us as human beings that longs to be part of something miraculous. And it is that desire for the miraculous that causes us to push away from Occam's razor when it comes to these experiences. If it was just a normal wind that made our normal door creak in our normal house, then we are simply normal, just like everyone else. But if it was a ghost reaching out from beyond visible reality to move a door in our haunted house, then we are part of something bigger than tangible, normal reality. We are apart from the boring masses trapped in the mundane experience of a simple world filled with concrete explanations. Still, Research shows that, by and large, people are hesitant to share their supernatural experiences. A considerable part of that hesitance comes from a fear of standing out, of being seen as not normal. 
Thank you. I, I just have one more question for you. And this is a terrible question. This is an absolutely textbook terrible question, but I am going to ask it anyway. Did you have a favorite case in the book? Ooh, um, probably. Let me, <laughs> let me think for one second. Look at the table <laughs> of contents. There's so much in there. Just a case that you loved digging into more than any other or sort of felt a personal connection to or just thought, you know, this is why I wrote this book was to be able to tell this story. I think the two. So my favorite thing in writing, both in to, to read and to do, is when complex ideas are explored beautifully. And I think the two places that I was able to do that the most was in the Mount Meadows chapter and the Skinwalker chapter. I felt I knew going into the book that those two chapters were going to be the most high risk and that I had to be sure to handle them the right way. Um, I feel like I was able to do that. And I feel like the, the, those chapters bore fruit. Um, so I am expecting some some hate mail, especially on the Mount Meadows massacre one, because people around here, mm. like you just even acknowledge that it happened and they get upset at you. Um, so, yeah. but I think those were my two favorite because they were so fruitful um, to dig into. Well, listeners have quite a lot of amazement and mystery and wonder uh, to look forward to as they peruse the pages of your book. I am going to try to get a good night's sleep tonight, but I'm not sure <laughs> that that's actually going to happen. <laughs> so I won't hold you responsible, Darren, but I'm just saying like that's a 50-50 shot after everything I've read. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have well, you. Thank you so much, Ben. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Darren Edwards, author of Supernatural Lore of Southern Utah, published this month by the History Press. To order a copy of Supernatural Lore, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop slash crime hyphen capsule. Join us again next week as our new series on ghost crimes and the paranormal continues as this year, Halloween comes early and often. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, our audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat 
and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.